All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back. It's the latest and greatest unqualified opinions from Asari. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot. Uh, we've got another great one today with Greg DePrisco, who's the head of business development at the Maker Foundation. Uh, we're going to cover lots uh, around stablecoins, programmatic stablecoins in particular, uh, multi-collateral DAI, which will be available very soon at TM, um, and, uh, and maybe why Maker is sending every single person from its entire team to DevCon, which is what we were just talking about. Um, it's going to be a, a, a wide-ranging conversation. Obviously, um, Maker is one of the most important uh, projects in the ecosystem right now. I would argue it's one of three that's actually found product market fit along with um, with Bitcoin, obviously, and then Ethereum, at least for, for fundraising. Um, and given, given its importance and, and I think the, the general acceptance um, that stable coins and, and, and stable payment tokens are, are going to be necessary to really drive adoption, um, we're, we're going to get quite a bit into the weeds, into the, the business of the Maker Foundation and the business surrounding this ecosystem. Um, so maybe slightly less technically focused, um, both given who we're speaking to on the, on the BD side and, and also because I feel like much of that is, is probably well covered online and, and maybe uh, a, a little bit um, I mean, if more you know, appropriate for, for a whiteboarding or like technical demo versus uh, versus the podcast. We can get technical if you don't mind the information being wrong. Yeah, there, there you go. So, so we're going we're gonna to try to bail people out and, and, and get things as right as possible. So, um, so Greg, why don't, why don't we start out um, by just learning a little bit more about uh, your journey into the ecosystem, you know, kind of how we got here, uh, both you personally and then, um, and then, you know, Maker as a project, um, the evolution and, and, and kind of where things are now and, and, and where, where we're going. We'll cover that's that's you know that's going to be the entirety of the conversation. But but why don't we, we start with the prelude um, about you and, and and company? Oh yeah, I, I had a pretty wild ride. 
right into the uh, into the space. So I was uh, in 2010. I was kind of like a Bitcoin fanatic, mm -hmm. but I was a Bitcoin fanatic in the context of being a libertarian. Mm -hmm. So I was on these libertarian message boards, and everyone was talking about Bitcoin because at the time, and I, I always remind people of this: like if you look at Bitcoin's pitches through time, it wasn't that crazy that it was going to be you know, the new reserve currency of the world in 2010, because the central banks were arguably going to collapse. And like that. So that was actually a fair argument to make back then. Now it seems absolutely insane to make that. But back then, it wasn't that crazy. All right, I'll let you finish. We're going to come back to that um, for, for sure, because it's impossible not to. That's COVID. But, uh, but, but keep going. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I got into it then. I, uh, you know, I, I bought some, which is all you could do. And then, uh, I proceeded to lose that Bitcoin, as everyone did, and then forgot about it for like three years. Um, at that point, I became a futures trader. I was a trader actually just right down the block here in Midtown mm -hmm. um, at a place called Axiom Markets. We traded anything that moved, uh, but it had to be like a real contract. We couldn't trade crypto at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was always just watching the crypto space evolve. So my uh, my next big thing that I found really interesting was BitShares. Mm -hmm. You remember at the time, BitShares and Ethereum, uh, I think Ethereum announced when BitShares went live. And I read the Ethereum white paper and I'm like, this is gibberish, I don't know what it says. So I got really into BitShares. And I thought BitShares was cool because it had uh, these financial contracts on it, like oil and the stock market and stuff. And I was a trader and I'm like, well, if I could avoid paying the CME $1.50 every time I click a button, I would love to do that. This seems to let me do that. Then I immediately found out there was no liquidity in these contracts and they were functionally useless. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that was actually the predecessor to die at the time. BitUSD was live on that network. Mm -hmm. um, so I got a little disillusioned with BitShares. It had a very strong developer community, but there was absolutely nobody focused on bringing those products to market. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, I found Ethereum when it went live on testnet. And that's when it all clicked for me, because I realized that just because BitShares had these financial contracts that were um, very tailored to what I was looking at, there was a million things you could do with this technology. And it was really very general purpose, which meant that it was going to be really difficult to build and really complicated to explain, but that had way more potential than I had originally thought it did. Mm -hmm. So I pitched my boss at the time. And I'm like, his, his name's Joe, we still work together. I'm like, Joe, we need to buy Ether. Trust me, I told you about Bitcoin 2010, you didn't listen to me, now you're gonna buy Ether. So we bought some Ether, went down the rabbit hole, and uh, as it started going up in price, like, you know, on its original ascent to 20, we were like, all right, how can we get into this in a bigger way? We're, we're bought in. So we decided that because the Winklevoss twins were so definitely going to get their ETF approved that fall, this was the winter 2016, we would launch an ETF that was going to track the price of Ether. Mm -hmm. So we uh, go to the lawyers, we get our S1 in, um, we file an 19 before, and then the next week, Dow hack. <laughs> so at first we're like, oh no, we missed it. And then on the way down, we're like, oh no, we're in. <laughs> So uh, at that point, we really had to solidify our thesis and say, is this something that we want to pursue, you know, even bigger? Because now we're being forced to either double down or um, get out. Mm -hmm. And as we started researching it, we found the dApps on Ethereum that we're building. We get very involved in the communities, maker specifically. 
and uh, we decided you that- You show the ETF plans though. Oh yeah, we, the ETF is still in registration with the SEC. Of course it is, <laughs> as, as it will be for the yes. next 10 years. <laughs> but uh, we realized that there was this asymmetric opportunity with these projects because they had these tokens that were representing the value inside of them. No traditional VC could touch them because they weren't securities, but at the same time, only retail investors could access them, which was causing the price to be artificially low, from, in our opinion. Mm-hmm. So what we did was, in the autumn of 2016, we raised a venture fund to invest in these tokens. Mm-hmm. And uh, we raised some money, and at the time, Maker was by and far our largest position. So as the bubble began to inflate, we decided we couldn't allocate any more capital, so let's try to help our existing portfolio companies. We started doing some free business development work, some structuring for Maker, and lo and behold, two and a half years later, I am sitting here. <laughs> and what happened to the fund? Uh, well, we ended up consolidating it, buying out some partners, and now just that guy Joe and I, we uh, Joe can tell me that we are the uh, just sole owners of it. Got it, got um, so what made you uh, make the leap from investing into active building? Normally, you see it go the other way around mm-hmm. in the smart For a good reason, by the way. It's a lot more fun to be the capital than labor. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. Um, what, you know, what, what drives that, right? Because uh, obviously, you know, you spun up the fund in, in, in you know, 2016 for the bull run. Um, you were early in Maker. I'm sure the fund has done very well. And, and um, obviously, you have some degree of autonomy now um, with, uh, with it just being you and your partner. So what, um, what kind of led you down the rabbit hole with Maker in the first place, right? Just from an investment thesis standpoint, what did you like about the project? Um, and then, you know, what did you love about the project to, to you know, actually join full time? Yeah, and that's, that's what I just hand waved away as the rabbit hole because mm-hmm. it was originally, okay, Maker seems to be, you know, one of the only projects on Ethereum that actually can deliver on this amazing vision. They have the team to do it. They have the uh, concept. But then as you, you went deeper, you realized that Maker was the thesis. Mm-hmm. The thesis of the fund, and this is where I always begin pitching Maker to people, is you know Maker's picking up where Bitcoin left off. Bitcoin wanted to be better peer-to-peer cash. It says it right in the white paper. That is what DAI is. And you know if you ever want to actually disintermediate banks and do all this cool stuff that Bitcoin said it was going to do, you have to have the properties of something like DAI. So we, we realized at that time that DAI was the thing we were looking for this whole this whole, for the whole period of time that we were investing. And that, you know, what's the thing that Mark Cuban says? Diversification's for idiots. So we, we dove all in. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you speak uh, very confidently about Maker uh, as well, the head of business development should, right? And, and someone's gone all in. Um, but it, it's, it's still uh, a derivative uh, of sorts. You can only get a specific. You can you, it's, it, there. There is underlying assets and collateral mm-hmm. um, that are employed to programmatically create a stable point, right? Mm-hmm. So, Maker does not exist without ETH right now. Right now, yeah. Right, um, and for the foreseeable future, even. Um, when we talk about you know multi collateral data, that, that's probably going to be the case. But before we we go into 
how you can actually scale this up. Wait, I do want. I want to take issue with one thing you said. So you you have a chance, but but, but but before we do that, um, let, let's just do like a, an explain like on five the mechanics of how you take um, an asset like ether that is very volatile, mm-hmm. and you ultimately use Maker to create a stable coin, um, and how the entire system works from a checks and balances standpoint, and, and kind of where we are today. Well, I'm glad, because that was actually the exact thing I was going to say. So, when you called it a derivative, I don't think that's accurate. Because DAI is created the same way that any US dollar, outside of like the most base of money, is created. If you think about, and this is the brilliance to me of Maker, it it didn't invent anything new. (laughs) The the best companies don't invent anything new, they make things better. Mm -hmm. Um, And don't quote me on that, that might be completely ass, but yeah. if you think about the way that a commercial bank creates money, they take an asset like your house and they print new money against it. The money that they printed is not a derivative of your house, it's just technically collateralized by your house. It's the exact same concept with Maker. You take an asset, you put it, you just replace the commercial bank with a smart contract. So you take the asset, you put it in the smart contract and you're able to print new money against it. The difference is, in the old system, you're completely beholden to the bank because they technically own your money. They, they print it and they put it right back in the account of the bank. And with, with DAI, you're printing your own money. So it's really a paradigm shift in terms of the creation process. Um, yes, but let's unpack the exact mechanics mm-hmm. uh, of how it works. So uh, step one, you need ETH, you need Maker. Well, you don't necessarily need Maker. Maker, you do, you need it for a different reason than I so go 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 just go through the creation process and then we'll mm-hmm. talk about um, kind of the, the credit default swap element or, or, or how we can um, compare this to traditional financial system and apparatus. Yeah, I'll just note that while it has analogs of the traditional financial mm-hmm. system, there's nothing that perfectly represents it. So there will there'll always be approximate. We, we, we need mental models. Yeah. Though, so so let's let's so, yeah, just for the simplest example and what you can do today in the system. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you have $150 worth of Ether. Uh, you put that Ether into our smart contracts. Those smart contracts are called CDPs. Mm-hmm. And you are now able to print any amount of DAI up to 66% of the value of that Ether. If your uh, DAI outstanding against that Ether goes above 66%, uh, the smart contract is going to liquidate the Ether via an option. It, when doing so, it raises DAI from the market and burns the amount that you had outstanding and then it returns the remaining collateral to you. Mm-hmm. There's some other stuff in there, there's a penalty for that happening, there's a stability fee that accrues over time, but the basic premise is it's just like a margin call. You have an asset in a contract, if the amount of DAI that you minted against that asset goes too high, then the contract liquidates your asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and the- Talk about the mechanics of the stability fee because it's 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 arguably um, I would say the primary innovation um, for how to actually ensure that the system mm-hmm. operates as intended and if someone gets liquidated and this is where Maker comes in yeah. because Maker the token is what controls the stability fee but it's also what controls all the parameters in the system you can think of it like a central bank's governors. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not, we didn't do anything new. This is the exact same thing that the central bank would do. 
So when a central bank sees the value of their currency uh, slipping against a basket of goods, they call it inflation and they uh, raise interest rates to discourage new borrowing. Mm-hmm. The maker governors do the exact same thing. So when the price of dye is slipping against the dollar, they will raise the stability fee to discourage people from borrowing new dye. Um, and you wouldn't want to borrow any dye for less than a dollar because you're essentially um, you're paying an implied. Um, yeah, it, it just rate. turns into an implied rate. Um, so the um, and also, but, but the main customer in our system are dye holders. Everything is built around keeping dye stable. And uh, with respect to the stability fee, you've um, in the past six months, mm-hmm. uh, you could argue the system has worked and uh, as it was designed and intended. Um, you could argue that it broke uh, in some respects because uh, the stability fee got up to close to 20%. Did it clear 20% at one point? point? No, I don't think it ever went. Might have been over, but maybe for a brief period, but it's still in the double digits, right? Um, what uh, can companies do or, or what, what will be required for the ecosystem to come back in equilibrium because I think that stability fee has stayed out of whack for a lot longer than many people would expect it. Why do you say it's out of whack? Uh, well, I mean, until earlier this year, it was more in line with traditional interest rates. You weren't you weren't talking about um, you know credit card interest rates, which is essentially what it is now. Um, so what? Um, so first of all, what do you attribute that to primarily, aside from? The maker holders have invested interest in raising the stability fee because they're actually earning those those fees. Um, and and what is a better uh, equilibrium long term? If you could predict where that should converge, right? Um, should that be like a risk free rate? Should it be some premium to you know prevailing interest rates to, to account for the risk in the system? Um, and, and how do we get there? Because I think you'd agree that it's at eleven percent now. Exactly. Okay. I think we agree that that's that's not the goal, right? To have eleven percent stability fees in a market where interest rates worldwide are. That's market. only on ether. Keep in mind. Let's let's break down the, the argument here. So, but, but, so, but let's let's use that as a starting point. So, so yes, um, it's just ether right now. Um, what should the ether only stability fee be, right? And 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 is that a fair rate given the volatility of ETH? And, and maybe that's where you're going to go. But, but let's work backwards. So. What is driving the need for the stability fee in the first place? Mm-hmm. It's called the stability fee because it's what's keeping guys stable. So the rate on any specific asset is a direct reflection of the borrowing demand on that asset. So if you have a ton of borrowing demand just on Ether, let's say that we've launched the multi-collateral system and we have two assets in the system. We have Ether and we have houses. And houses are obviously going to have a cap on what you can charge because you can just go to a bank and get a mortgage. So let's say that the house can't accrue more than a 4.5% stability fee. Well, then Ether is going to be whatever Ether has to be to keep it the percentage of the portfolio that you want it to be. Because if you have 80% of the die being backed by ETH and only 20% being backed by houses, maybe that's not the ratio that the maker holders want because maybe that doesn't achieve maximum stability. Mm-hmm. So any the stability fee on any given asset is a direct re- reflection of the sentiment on that asset. So what we saw was when the system first started, there was very bearish sentiment on Ether. In, uh, stability fees were 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're ever going to see that again. But uh, as sentiment on Ether became more bullish, you saw it go up into the 20s. And this was all a reflection of 
you know, given the fixed amount or the linearly growing amount of demand for dye, that we can that these people that are creating it can sell it onto the market for a dollar. What does the stability fee have to be to keep that price at a dollar? And the answer was at one point twenty percent. Now it's eleven percent. It's volatile because the system is operating with one hand tied behind its back. So right now we are only able to control the stability fee on the creation of dye. There's no way to pass part of that stability fee onto dye holders themselves. So going forward, when we release MCD very soon, uh, you'll see something called the dye savings rate. Mm-hmm. And the dye savings rate is a smart contract that dye holders can lock their dye into and receive a portion of the stability fees. So we anticipate that this will not only compress fees across the system, it will lower the volatility of the fee itself because you'll have a much more predictable way of spurring dye demand. Um, and so this would be on uh, just a, a proportional basis, right? So, so you're, you're not setting two different rates. You're, you're basically saying X percent of the stability fee um, is going to go to dye holders versus maker holders. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and, and what do you think about it? Is that something that the, the maker holders vote on? Yeah, that, everything in our system is a governance framework. Mm-hmm. So it really is completely decentralized. So the maker holders would have to put that rate and then manage that rate. What are some preliminary proposals that you've seen from the community in terms of what that split should be? Because at 11%, you could probably simulate much more demand for a die mm-hmm. if it was like 50-50, right? And also you can earn 5.5% interest on, on your die. But again, it's, it's not really up to them because they just have to do whatever keeps that up. So if they make this, mm-hmm. the die savings rate too high, then die is going to go above a dollar because people are going to start to price in that sure. rate. Mm-hmm. So they're going to make it whatever the demand for that week is. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so uh, that's just Ether, right? That's just the, the system that we have in place right now. Um, which is a beta product. Which, 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 yeah, which, which is a beta product. So multi-collateral die, um, what comes next? We, I won't hold you to a timeline because it's, it's, uh, obviously you've been beaten up on that already, um, as many other projects, just in, in terms of how long things actually take in practice and, and some of these systems to show. Um, but once it, what, what is the rollout plan uh, and, and, and in stages, and what do you expect are, are some of the key milestones and, and key de-riskings that you're going to need for multi-collateral die? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and what are some of the challenges that you think uh, are foreseeable, but at least they're known unknowns that, that you're going to keep a close eye on once that comes live? Yeah, and I, I can simplify that whole question. So we have a, um, a roadmap that's public now on our website. Mm-hmm. It doesn't provide timelines, but it does provide the various milestones that we need to meet. So as for the stages, uh, viewers, listeners can just go to the roadmap document. The important one is releasing the smart contracts on mainnet. Mm-hmm. Once the smart contracts are on the mainnet, then the other important thing, the governance function, can take control. And from that point, it can really build upon itself because now they have a decentralized infrastructure that's permanently on the mainnet, and they hopefully have enough uh, you know, social infrastructure built around the decentralized governance function that they can properly manage it. And that's the biggest risk. That's always been the biggest risk. Mm-hmm. It's making sure that this decentralized governance function operates properly. What are some of the first assets that are going to be incorporated into FCD? So I believe there's a few ERC-20s that were voted in recently. Uh, you know, these are, I, I, it's hard to say whether they'll have economically significant debt ceilings. 
The debt ceiling is the way that you manage how much DAI can be borrowed in aggregate against the asset. That's another parameter. But they will be. And that's, a, that's a fixed number versus a percentage? It could be anything. It's, it's again a governance parameter. They can put in a formula to determine it, or they can make it a hard cap. Like in the beta product, uh, the hard cap on DAI outstanding against ETH is 100 million. Got it. Um, and we're at 70 million now? In the 80s now. In the 80s? So getting getting up to the death ceiling. And, and it, you would need a maker. You hit 94 at one point. You would need a maker vote to increase the death ceiling. Mm-hmm. Which we already did once. Mm-hmm. Uh, they voted when we first launched the beta. I don't think we thought it would exist for as long as it has. <laughs> the death ceiling was 50 million now, and they raised that to 100 million. And it, it's important to note that the death ceiling has nothing to do with the economics of the system. It's a, uh, at least in this iteration, it's a uh, technical constraint. Mm-hmm. It's because the contracts that we have now, while thoroughly audited, are not firmly verified. The contracts we'll be releasing for multi-collateral die will be both audited and formally verified. And so you're going to have asset-by-asset debt ceilings um, determined by the maker voters. Well, well every asset has three uh, important parameters. That's a collateralization ratio. Yes, which is just the inverse of a loan to value ratio. Mm-hmm. And the stability fee. Mm-hmm. And if I had to guess, I'd say that two of those numbers would be relatively static, and one will be variable, and then the variable is the stability fee. And then if you look into that number, a portion of the stability fee that will be the most variable is the DSR, because that will function as almost the risk free rate of the system. DSR being the die saving Let's, uh, so, you know, first of all, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating that Maker survived the 90% ETH downdraft, right? I, I wasn't think, surprised. I think, I think, well, I, I think that was um, probably the most important thing that, that was de-risked in, in this most recent bear cycle mm-hmm. um, because there was, you know, quite a bit of, of concern and, and it was an open question whether, um, a a vicious cycle downward to that extreme um, would just create uh, an unwinding of the entire protocol, the entire um, ecosystem. It was a public concern within the foundation. I don't think anybody had any concerns about that. If you looked at the numbers, you could tell that the system had more than enough collateralization to withstand way more than we saw. Uh, give an impression of, of how much you believe uh, was remaining in buffer, right? So, so was it um, was it a time buffer? So the the slow and steady decline kind of made things uh, less painful, um, or was it just a a pure uh, you know, nominal value that you know, we could have run down the ETH to forty and, and make her still to survive? Volatility driven or, or, or just total price driven? It's both. It's, uh, the two numbers you have to look into are the overall collateralization ratio in the system at any point in time. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's like there's $3 of collateral for every one die. That, that changes all the time, so don't quote me on that. But. At the all time low, where was that? Uh, it was actually the highest at the all time low, I believe. Because people, as the sentiment grew more bearish, would over collateralize their loans to protect themselves from getting so you, can you, you can actually, if you look at our collateral, if you go to mkr.tools, mm-hmm. we have our system wide collateralization over time. And personally, from a trader's perspective, I think it acts as like a perfect this for the crypto markets. Interesting. Because it shows you the confidence of the people that are uh, leveraged trading ETH. 
But the other function of this is the amount of time that you have to unwind the positions. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, I think, if, if you just think, as a, think of it as a math problem, if you have a 200% collateralization of the system, and everything, and Ether drops 50% in one minute, well now you're still fully collateralized. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but if Ether drops 25% in one minute, then you can unload 75% uh, of that ETH at, in the next minute, then the system's fine. Yeah. So like it was really, it, what people didn't realize when we launched is that a 150% over collateralization ratio as a minimum is a very conservative number. That is practically unheard of in traditional finance. Well, and that's, that's one of the knocks, right? You can't, you can't have a functioning debt market if, if uh, your collateralization ratio is, is over 100%, right? Um, no, of course you can. Every, every debt market has a collateralization ratio of over 100%. Uh, so what? Yeah, if you were if you were borrowing from uh, a Galaxy or Genesis, you're normally looking at like one twenty five versus you know one one fifty. I, I always try to draw my comparisons to the legacy system because mm -hmm. I think that the crypto system is just weird. <laughs> but if you look at the legacy system, you go and uh, deposit a house at a bank and take a, a you know a home equity loan. You're probably going to get an eighty percent loan to value. They're going to make you put down a twenty percent deposit plus your house. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then if you go to uh, you know very if you get more into the money markets, the collateralization ratios get a lot lower, but it's always over one hundred percent. So maybe I'm just and I'm not always there are unsecured loans, but that's just a different form of collateral. So the primary difference being, um, so I think we're talking about two different things. Um, uh, if you are going to make the comparison to commercial banking, um, there's a fractional reserve element to the banking system, right? Um, with Maker, are you ever going to have a system where there are many, many multiples of DAI versus the underlying collateral? Um, and how do we... Why, why do you say that there is many multiples of the money supply versus the underlying collateral? You're talking about the reserves, which are base money. Mm -hmm. That's not collateral. The collateral is the assets that you're pledging to the bank. So if you are an invoice factoring company, maybe the invoice factoring company keeps 10% of its balance sheet in cash, and that's reserves, and they call themselves fractional reserves because they have 10 times the amount of uh, cash out there that they minted. But they still have over 100% of the assets that you pledge to them as collateral. That's why I challenge you in the beginning to say die is not a derivative. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. 
Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. Uh, I guess, what are, what are some of the outstanding uh, concerns or, or kind of key challenges that you see as, as part of this rollout? One is just kind of managing the complexity, but um, you or, or other uh, services that are built on top of Maker, which there are several now, are, are I think generally doing a good job of, of mm-hmm. attracting away at least some of the early complexity. Um, multi-collateral DAI is going to introduce a whole heck of a lot more. Um, Right out of the gates, um, but I assume it will be a relatively slow rollout. You've, you've only got other ERC twenties right now, so you're not talking yeah. about collateralizing Bitcoin. The um, system will get stress tested quite a bit before mm-hmm. you see anything economically significant. I, I believe, you know, I can't speak for the maker holders; they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, while while multi collateral increases complexity, it reduces risk implicitly. So every asset that you add, as long as it's not directly correlated to either, will reduce the risk of the overall portfolio and there the uh, idea that there could be an under-collateralization event. Have, um, has the maker inflation um, event, has there been a time where liquidations have actually caused an inflationary event to maker yet? No. There, um, is, there has not been a single under-collateralization event as far as I know. And what is the closest that you've come to that? I don't know specifically. I mean, it was probably still pretty far off. <laughs> it's, like I said, one hundred fifty percent is a very conservative number. Um, well, and, and and even today, it's, it's, you said three times over collateralized. That's the average for the system. So yeah, I mean, we never. I, oh, you, we can look that up on Maker Tools. I'm pretty sure it's never gone below two hundred. Maybe maybe at like one ninety something. Like it's it's never come. The system wide collateralization has never come mm-hmm. close to one hundred fifty, as far as I know. Got it. Um, how do you think about getting closer to the edge? And, and, and is there a situation uh, or a case to be made that you actually want to stress test that at some point? And, and how do you go about doing that? Because that's always going to be this um, this black swan kind of existential type risk for the ecosystem if you never even come close to it. So you could say, well, we don't want to. That's that's kind of a stopgap and it's an emergency measure. Um, but uh, it's, it's how, how do you uh, navigate that tension of wanting to actually prove that this whole apparatus will work um, versus actually having something like the VIX uh, or the XIV universe, which just flat out blew up uh, at one point? Well, I don't, I don't think that's related. Why? The inverse, because this isn't a... I, I wasn't so, saying that the, so, the paper protocol is similar to the VIX. I was saying that the collateralization ratio of the system is similar to a fear index. Well, my, my point is, if you ever have a, a, an out-of-norm event that is, you know, standard black swan. deviations, yeah. yep, black swan event, um, you're going to touch that... Um, that inflation scheme, right? And, and you're going to you have mean the, the, the MKR dilution. Yes, and you will have the, the dilutive event with MKR. Um, do you hope that never happens? Or is there kind of a controlled burn you can do 
to at least test whether that functionality will actually pull up in the wild? I don't think it's a controlled functionality. I mean, if that happened, that, that's the last resort. Mm-hmm. That's the, the ultimate insurance fund against the whole system collapsing. But I, it, it, put it this way, if it's minor enough, I can't imagine it not working. But at the same time, I, I think as long as Maker continues to grow and become an, an economically significant project, it's going to get tested one day because of the way that the incentives are aligned. So maker holders are incentivized to keep die stable, but after they keep die stable, they're incentivized to maximize their profits. And the way they maximize profits is by over time getting as efficient as possible with collateralization ratios and stability fees. So if you imagine that, then it, it, put it this way, I, I don't think that the legacy banking system would see black swan events if they were preventable. Mm-hmm. So they're probably unpreventable, but it's not like we don't get through them. Sure. Um, well, uh, yes, yes, and no. For for something like this, and, and this is why I brought up the um, the, the, the VIX example. Um, that was a known risk for the XID product, and at one point, uh, you had an out of norm events, and it just led to uh, a cascading effect where they had online that. Product. But the XID is nothing like the maker That was a futures derivative. I mean, the, the only the only comparison I think the VIX has to the maker protocol is the the fear index component of the collateralization ratio. I, I would use I think if you're going to make analogs to the maker protocol, you just have to use the legacy mm-hmm. central banking systems. Got it. Um, well, uh, maker is like a credit default swap, and, and there are limits to how how resilient that was, and and the. Uh, financial crisis that led to the creation of this entire asset class. Yeah, yeah and, and but this is a point I always bring up with people. There is no perfect system. Mm-hmm. There, there's no way that you can eliminate all risk. All you can do is make it more transparent to so sure. people mm-hmm. see it. So the difference between us and AIG is that nobody knew how much exposure AIG had. If you want to see how much exposure Maker has, the balance sheet is one click away either side. I, I, I buy that argument. I think you know the, the reason I'm I'm pressing on this point is any there is a lot of uh, infrastructure that's being built on top of Maker, which is being built on top of Ethereum and, and some of these other crypto assets. So you've got um, even though it's transparent, potentially cascading risk if you don't control the levers appropriately, or if the Maker holders, for instance. Um, started to get more aggressive uh, with with some of the the uh, levers of the system and said, you know what, we don't actually need 150 percent. It it could be 120. Right? Well, in MCD, there will be multiple CDP types for every asset. It, so it, it, for a portion of ether based die, there will be 120. Okay, so here's so here's an interesting one. Um, is a way to test um, the liquidation. Uh, Procedures for for uh, Maker with one of the smaller ERC twenties that's added on the multi-collateral die. So you're not putting the whole system at risk, but at least one asset might get liquidated, and you might actually test those circuit breakers with MKR. I'm trying to think of how. I suppose yeah, I think you could. I this is where we go into the technical stuff where I you know I have. To well, because the question is, um, if you're trying to de-risk that, couldn't you just throw a shit coin into your basket? Um, and then basically force a liquidation event and then and, and kind of watch the apparatus um, work and, and, and watch uh, a certain percentage of MQR get printed. It'd probably be either a small percentage because most of the collateral is still going to be in ETH. 
Um, but uh, to me, I think that that was one of the things that uh, maybe I had a misunderstanding about that I, that I thought was going to be um, tested out in the coming releases with with MCD. It could be, but that that's something that's entirely up to the maker holders. Mm-hmm. They have to consciously and publicly choose to do that. Got it. Um, all right, so so let's talk about uh, where you spend most of your time, which is just mm-hmm. the ecosystem development and, and all these other projects that, that are building on top of uh, of Maker. Um, so, just the, I think the pace of development on top of the protocol has, has been uh, pretty pretty staggering. Which um, which are some of the most important projects today, and 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 what are some of the missing gaps? Um, that you are excited about other teams working on to actually make this um, much more usable to, to go from you know close to 100 million and die to you know potentially you know billion or billions in, in the next you know, couple of years, particularly as MCD gets rolled out. Um, and uh, and and how do you avoid um, or is it a concern to have any one entity that builds on top of you that ends up controlling X percent? Of the die or, or or the uh, you know kind of downstream um, applications. Well, let me let me start by going over the the purpose of the foundation and my role. Mm-hmm. So the foundation has uh, what I identify as three key milestones that it wants to meet. And keep in mind, the foundation intends to wind itself down after a few years mm-hmm. once we meet those milestones. The first one is multi-collateral die. We have to get that out. The second is making sure that there is this long-term infrastructure that can support the DAO once it's live. Mm-hmm. And that's, some, that's things like the decentralized governance function, but also things like oracles. And the third is growth, and that's where I specialize in. Mm-hmm. Uh, growth means, you know, what, what's the word? We like to use the word critical mass. And critical mass is a, you know, a hand-waved way of saying that we want to make sure that the DAO ecosystem can support itself without us. So in that context, uh, the business development team looks at two different metrics. We look at the amount of dye we can get out there in volumes, but we also look at the distribution and the uh, ubiquity of dye within different protocols and business lines. Mm-hmm. And that's to answer your, your final question that you asked. Uh, we, yeah, we consciously try to make sure that dye is in as many places as possible to give it the best chance of having that ecosystem grow so that it's not leveraged to one or two parties. We, we never thought it was a good strategy to just target giant integrations and then have be very reliant on one company. We try and spread ourselves thinner, which you know has its sacrifices, but at the same time builds a more resilient ecosystem. Uh, Compound being the, the largest today, is built on top of, of Dai. Yeah, and that, I think that's fantastic, because while I know there's criticisms, Compound is still pretty decentralized. <laughs> it's based on smart contracts, and uh, it's, it's very transparent. As opposed to, let's say, we had 80% of the dye supply sitting in a centralized exchange. Yeah, I think you have to look at everything relatively. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, where where is the uh, majority of dye today? Uh, see, I would have I would have assumed that, that much of it still is on exchanges. It's very well distributed. I and we a we don't track that, <laughs> and b um, we really can only track it to a certain extent. We can see what wallets it's in. Mm-hmm. So to the you can go on either stand and look just as well as I can, but uh, I, I think it's quite well distributed. If you had to pick where the most die is, I would say it's probably compound right now. Okay. Um, what are, outside of money market, 
accounts, which is essentially what, what Compound is mm -hmm. working on. Uh, what are the other applications that you all are excited about? What is um, what should we expect on the horizon for, for the next six, 12 months? Mm -hmm. um, because up until, I'd say, earlier this year, you didn't really have a functioning stable coin that could be used for DeFi applications. So, so Maker was, was kind of the precursor to every other bit of infrastructure and, and every other type of, of DeFi applications being built on top. Um, a, you know, that, that's why I think we touched on so, so many of the risks and, and, and the underlying architecture, but, um, but B, how fast can Maker scale and how fast do you anticipate these, uh, these DApps scaling? Um, and, and will we see anything that really is you know, mainstream adoption in, in the next year or so? Well, because you made a new app, DSR, I believe, is going to trigger mainstream adoption. Because, and, and this goes back to the, the fundamental premise of why you would use DAI over you know, US dollars or another stable coin. Mm -hmm. And that is that it is completely outside of the existing financial contract. So because of that, you can offer rates, you know, for instance, the DAI saving trade that is completely detached, or you know, at least implicitly detached from the Fed funds rate. So it, it, it creates this whole new financial ecosystem, and that's, that's why one of the many reasons decentralization is important. Because without that decentralization, you are ultimately always tethered to the legacy financial system, and then you're making incremental innovation, not exponential. But let me, let me go into our verticals that we approach. Mm -hmm. So within the business development team, we, have, you know, we break down our verticals into the functions of money because that's ultimately our product. So we have uh, the standard of deferred payment vertical, which is just a fancy way of saying the collateral side of the equation. Mm -hmm. On this side, we are mainly doing a lot of research right now. So there's, there's obviously these other uh, tokens. I believe TUSD submitted an application to uh, the govern, uh, the maker governors last week, but you know we're looking to see what are the limits of the system, where can it be competitive, where can't it, and then hopefully one day we can present that research to the maker holders and say here's the landscape you're looking at. Uh, on this, on the demand side for Dai, we have three verticals. We have store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. I'll start with unit of account because it's the most esoteric. Uh, that is the blockchain verticals. That's where we are with the unit of account of money in that system. And Compound is a great example of that. Um, then we have medium of exchange. This is the biggest vertical, but it's also the most difficult to penetrate. This is payments. So uh, the reason being payments work pretty well. Because they work damn well. <laughs> and uh, they're very efficient, but they, there are places where they're not so efficient, and there are corridors where they're not so efficient. So what we've done over the last year is try to identify where the inefficiencies are and see how we can help. And what we've landed on is remittance, which is something that a lot of cryptocurrencies have landed on. The difference being that our cryptocurrency is stable. Mm -hmm. So it has all of the promise that Bitcoin was originally going to deliver to remittances with the lack of volatility. Uh, in terms of partnerships in this vertical, we recently signed a deal with CoinSource. I'm not sure if you saw that. So they're, I believe, the largest Bitcoin ATM company. Uh, we are going to be their exclusive stablecoin, and we are going to hopefully grow out a remittance vertical for them. Where, you know, and, and this is something that I always try to push the team to do, is to pick partners that are innovating in and of themselves. You know, it, it's one thing if DAI is the innovation, 
it's a lot more compelling if DAI is the innovation on top of another innovation. So for CoinSource, their whole business model is to disintermediate the brick and mortar remitters. You know, why are you? Why do you need a whole storefront to be a remitter to be Western Union? You don't. You need an ATM machine with better technology. So their pitch is you go ATM to ATM, and you can put USD in in the US. It'll be converted to DAI in the back end. That'll get sent to, let's say, Argentina and converted to pesos where somebody can withdraw. You're, uh, so you're still going to be beholden to uh, Ether's gas rates, though, right, for, for, for exchange? Well, that's if you're not using a uh, second order solution. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these, I don't know if you saw the burner wallet, that was a big hit. Yep, yep. Uh, Used it at, uh, at Ether Denver. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the concept there is that while we have the ability to protect every transaction behind the security of the full Ethereum mainnet, you don't really need to protect your purchase of a cup of coffee for five dollars mm -hmm. with that power. So if you're if you're able to isolate and abstract that risk away to a secondary network for very specific instances, then you can probably reduce the overall cost of gas. But so far, the gas costs haven't even been a problem because they're not that high. I interrupted you. So there was the yeah, there was the final vertical, which is actually our uh, probably our most compelling one currently, which is the store value. And this is where currently we only have traction in countries where the, where the local currency is very volatile. So for instance, uh, we have seen a lot of traction in Argentina. We actually expanded the business development team to have full-time employees down there. And we are on, I think, five major exchanges in Latin America now. Uh, DAI currently trades at a, I believe, this is yesterday, a 20% premium <laughs> down there because uh, there's just so much demand for a decentralized stablecoin, mm -hmm. and you can really see the the risk premium of that because the blue dollar, you know, the the underground dollars that they have in the Argentinian economy, those trade at an eight percent premium. So Dai is trading at a significant premium even to the underground money because it's decentralized because it can traverse borders so easily. So uh, one last topic, I feel like we we have to touch on because it uh, it really touches every single component of, of this conversation, whether you're talking about um, the rate setting, which assets to use as, as the underlying collateral, whether you're talking about um, how to ensure that this remains decentralized over time, whether you're talking about how do you test um, or, or can or should you test the, um, the, the you know, liquidation limits and, and, and stress tests that make her uh, inflation as a last resort policy. Uh, and that's the governance of the system, mm -hmm. right? So you talk about the governors as if they're sitting around like the Fed boardroom. Obviously, it's not that. Um, they have their Google Hangout. Yeah. But there, there is a Google Hangout. Like they, they set rates, you know, during group calls and then a Google Hangout. So um, talk a little bit about the governance that's, that's in place today and, um, and how you kind of ensure that each element and each decision remains decentralized, but also that you have uh, quorum, that you have kind of folks that have vested interest in the success of the system, um, or at least all its actors, um, or uh, maybe all actors you don't want, but, but people continuously acting in their own self-interest mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that things don't break. What's, um, what, what, what is the current structure? How um, do people actually vote other than just holding tokens? Well, they, they vote by holding tokens. No, I know that, but, but you have the token, then what, then what, right? So what, what is what is the uh, method to actually participate? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle that first, and then we'll go to the rest of them. Just mm -hmm. to answer the voting question, 
Uh, we use a process called continuous voting. It means that whatever current proposal has the most NKR stake to it is the live proposal on the system. So that proposal contains all of the information about the system at that point in time. So only one proposal can ever be in uh, production at one time. Okay. Uh, to answer your question about how do we keep things better than they are right now, you know, because if we can't beat the Federal Reserve or whatever they're doing, then you know, wouldn't we really innovate on? Uh, this is something that our founder, Ruin, has been trying to drive home probably since day one, where you need scientific governance. You need to present public data to back up every assertion that you make, and it will be a painful process, but it will be ultimately an effective and efficient process to price collateral. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing right now, if you, if this is on our roadmap too, on the website, you're seeing the initial stages of the governance infrastructure being put in place. So I'm pretty sure the maker holders have now elected what we call the governance facilitator. The governance facilitator does a variety of functions. One of them is maintaining the list of collateral that's up for discussion. Uh, the governance facilitator can't enter collateral, then only the maker holders can do that. But, but the point is that you need this much broader process around governance. If governance doesn't work if you don't have a defined process. Um, so there's the role, uh, the facilitator's role um, is limited to what precisely? I don't know the specific details. I don't even know if that's all ironed out yet. I just know that there's a variety of roles in the system. We have these other uh, groups called risk teams. Mm -hmm. uh, right now we have risk teams within the foundation. Um, there's a few of them. There's the financial risk analysis teams, there's the legal risk analysis teams, there's the technical risk analysis teams, and these are all groups that are going to have to sign off on every collateral type before they can even be considered. Uh, to give you an example, let's say you want Ryan Coin to be an MCD. Well, you're going to have to first trust test the liquidation policy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's immediately our shit coin that we're going to It'll be called Ryan shit coin. There it is. You have to approach the governance community on the forums. You have to get the governance facilitator to add you to a list that's up for consideration. They think that's how it works at least. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, there has to be these elected teams in place. Uh, I don't know if we're calling them risk teams, DAO teams, or calling them something, but the point is that there are groups of people that have to make themselves known and they have to be elected. And there should be more than one of these teams for every function that's on this list. Is um, is maintenance of the oracles also under that? That's that's separately. Separately. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's ultimately, I believe, six things that you have to look for when viewing collateral from the governance perspective. You have the financial risk analysis. This is the team, and, and you only—I don't know how many teams you'll need to sign off in any given collateral type. I don't know if that's figured out yet. Mm -hmm. But the point is that this financial risk analysis team will assign parameters and give their sign off at the end of the day. Uh, so they'll give you the stability fee, the liquidation ratio, the um, debt ceiling, and then it'll get passed to the technical analysis team. They'll look at the contracts, they'll check the audits, etc. Then it'll get passed to the legal risk analysis. If it's a security, they're going to have to do a lot of analysis based on that. Uh, then they'll look into the oracles to make sure that there's proper price feeds set up for this. Then they'll look into the adapter contracts, which is the way that it actually enters the system technically. And then they'll look into the auction contracts which is related to the adapter contract. So there's, it, it's a very thorough process to get collateral into the system. So it seems like the two um, areas in particular that, that really require off-chain uh, heavy lifting 
Um, is on the legal side, you know, security analysis maybe. That's if the maker holders let security token into the system, yeah. Okay. Um, but that's, even that is ambiguous uh, in terms of what is a security. Register or, security. Or, 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 you know, um, and then the other one, which is um, very obvious, is, is how you handle the, the data feeds and the price oracles. Um, and what, if anything, um, is built into the system as a form of like circuit breaker. Um, because you see fat finger trays, mm -hmm. you see um, uh, just outright inaccuracies uh, at, you know, in many cases coming directly from the source, the exchanges themselves. Um, you'll see these weird candles, these, you know, yeah. the, the, the orders that get filled at like a penny, um, and, and ultimately could throw the entire system out of whack. So what, um, you've traditionally managed your own Oracle and price feeds at the Maker Foundation. Correct? Yes. Yeah, so far, I think we, we have built all the Oracle infrastructure, but we don't necessarily manage those Oracles ourselves. Okay. There's a big group of people that does that, and it uses a mesh network uh, based off a secure scuttlebutt, if you've heard of that, that uh, basically builds some resilience around the price feed process. But I, and by no means do I want to hand wave away the Oracle problem. It is one of the higher risk in the system because if Oracles get hacked, Obviously, there's a big problem. We have, that being said, we have built a lot of mitigations in to protect against this. Mm -hmm. Oracles, uh, they only ping exchanges for feeds every so often. Mm -hmm. They then mediumize this price. That price in MCD is going to be entered with an hour-long delay. And in that hour-long delay, you could trigger something called emergency shutdown, which turns die to a direct redemption on the underlying collateral at the last valid price. So. And I'd say this, while Oracle attacks are a big risk, at the same time, I believe personally that they're mitigated to the point where the maximum problem that could result from them is uh, friction. I don't believe anybody would lose money from an Oracle attack. That's a personal belief, I can't purely back that up, but I think that we've mitigated it to the point where that is the primary risk, friction. Yeah, uh, it, it, it certainly seems um, maybe that's the case. I'm, I'm not as familiar with the um, with the infrastructure that's, that's been built, but um, I just, you know, we have started, we know about the data integrity challenges in the industry kind of in, in general. So, um, so I, I'd, I'd be you know, very curious a little bit more about that, um, but that's probably just what we're Well, keep in mind, like, maker holders elect oracles as well. Mm -hmm. So when their oracles will be just as public and scientifically governed as everything else. And you have a couple of other data providers um, that have spun up oracles so far. Uh, I think CoinGecko uh, and one other, um, I'm not too familiar with the other. Just send some proposals, maybe. We will consider it in the future. <laughs> um, the, uh, so I guess, um, you know, final thoughts. Uh, where uh, can people get involved uh, and, and uh, can they just kind of bump into somebody at DevCon if they're going and, and find it, something? It would be maker? hard not to bump into somebody for Maker. What, what, are, the, um, what are, are the goals um, in rolling so aggressively deep uh, DevCon and, and, and what are you guys hoping to do um, and, and, and get accomplished in Q4 from an ecosystem standpoint? The DevCon question, I think we're trying to show our presence and that you certainly are. <laughs> and de demonstrate all of the exciting stuff that we've done over the past year that maybe hasn't made it to the public yet. Uh, in terms of what to look forward to, we're seeing a lot of traction in gaming. I think that's a very exciting vertical. 
uh, some blockchain games have recently integrated DAI, and I think they're realizing that the same flexibility and composability that DAI offers to DeFi, it offers to games as well. Because if you think about what, from the perspective of a game developer, they can invent these new worlds at the click of a button, mm -hmm. but then they're completely constrained to the legacy financial system. So we, I believe DAI in 2020 is going to do for games what it did for DeFi in 2019. So I'm personally very excited about the gaming vertical. I would look out for some blockchain games that will be integrating DAI. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're, we're all really excited about the DSR on the business development team. We think that's going to be what lets us make a mainstream push because it should have a higher uh, rate of deposit than most high yield savings accounts. So we're, we're anticipating that that should at least get us some integrations that will, you know, perhaps not pass all of that interest onto you, but pass enough onto the end customer and also keep enough for themselves that it makes it economically viable to integrate into legacy products. Well, uh, we'll continue to keep close tabs on the project, uh, and uh, we will see you at DevCon as well, maybe some of the, the viewers here. Um, oh, if they want to get involved, they should go to forum.makerdow.com. That is our governance forum. They can join the conversation, and if they have NPR, they can have their say. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure having you. Uh, until next time, everybody. Next time being tomorrow, uh, we're going to roll out another episode of my Qualified Opinions. Thanks for joining. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.